Hello, hello. Happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Rock Fellowship. Whether you're joining us here in person or if you're watching us online live stream, um, wherever you are, Arizona, Alaska, wherever, we're glad you're joining us for worship. You can join us for worship and fellowship on this Sabbath day. If you're just joining us for the first time this week and you haven't missed, and you've missed church in a little bit, it's been a while, I want to catch you kind of up to speed for what's been going on for the past now third week in a row now. We've been in the middle of a series, or actually wrapping up a series, called Doubt. And for the past two weeks, we've been talking about the intricacies of doubt, what it really means to have doubt, and the nuanced biases between doubt and unbelief. And in part one, Pastor Chris opened up the series by talking about how there's a nuanced but important difference between doubt and unbelief, where doubt is this struggle where you want to believe but you have these hang-ups, and unbelief is just flat out a rejection of the teachings of God. And if you remember, he, he uh, contrasted the response of Jesus to John the Baptist's doubt on, are you really the Messiah who we should be waiting for, versus Peter's immediate rebuke and rejection of what Jesus had in store for him. And again, Jesus' response to John the Baptist's doubt was one of very compassion, and he never rebukes him. Whereas when Peter outright rebukes him and, and disobeys Jesus and tells him that what he's going to say isn't going to come to true, he rebukes him to his face. And last week, Pastor Chris talked about the nuance or the, the cultural bias that we have in society today, where bias is a bias towards doubt and skepticism, where doubt and skepticism and being unsure and questioning things is seen as highly intelligent and thoughtful, and trust and faith are seen as primitive and naive and, and unintelligent. And he had three tips how we can grow and combat our biases towards doubt and skepticism. The first was how we can doubt our doubts. Question your unbelief, that doubt that you have. Make sure it lines up and is intellectually correct with everything else that you have. Grow your trust. Again, a lot of times trust, trust these days, especially outside of church, is seen as naive and primitive and, oh, you must have not thought about it very much. Or you're a very trusting person can seem kind of like an insult and in, in, um, a slight of someone being naive. And last but not least, staying healthy, which a lot of times can seem a little bit, what does that really have to do with growing my, my trust and my faith? But a lot of times he talked about just being emotionally, mentally, spiritually not well can lead you down a rabbit hole of bad ideas and poor theology. Now, for the past two weeks, again, we've been mentioning doubt, and, and really the target audience we talked about it last week is someone that may not really want to be here. You're here rather begrudgingly, or you're here, but you have one foot in the church, one foot out the church, and you have these doubts about God and Christianity and the church and the structure, and what is this really all about? What does it really mean to follow Jesus, and do I actually believe in those things? And as we end this series, Pastor Chris kind of mentioned it, uh, last week as well. This series is really for someone that has been here the past two weeks, and you're like, yeah, that was good, that was awesome, Pastor Chris had these awesome tips and, and these biblical truths, but if I'm being honest, that didn't quite cut it for me. I brought these doubts, and, and I saw that the series was going to be on doubt, and I brought these personal hang-ups that I have, these roadblocks in my faith, and I brought them, and to be honest, I still have them. It, it didn't quite do it for me. Or maybe you're someone that's joining us for the first time and you, and you realize it doesn't even matter that you weren't here for part one and part two because for you, there's no way any pastor could have said anything in part one and two on a series of doubt that could actually help you and bring satisfaction and unravel that doubt and that skepticism and that hang-up that you have. So if you're, in, if you're one of those two categories or you have someone, a loved one in your life that, that is struggling with doubt and they're not really sure what to do about following Jesus and you want to bring them to church and you want to have them be a part of this community and believe but they just have these hang-ups, I'm glad you're here because this week is kind of like the final boss. If you made it past part one and part two and you're still like, man, I'm really still not sure, 
congratulations. You made it to the final stage of doubt. And if Pastor Chris, with his many, many more decades of ministry experience and biblical knowledge, cannot help you, I obviously have the answer for all of your doubts and your questions. Uh, but in all seriousness, this final part of our doubt series is for anyone that is struggling with or has a loved one that is struggling with a sort of debilitating level of doubt. And what I mean by that is you have a level of doubt that's so strong and that's so in your face that it's preventing you from going any deeper in your understanding of Jesus. Your doubt and this hang-up that you have, it's so rough and it's so strong and you really can't see anything past it that is preventing you from wanting to grow in your understanding of who Jesus is. You don't really care about learning more about Jesus or being more involved at church because, quite frankly, you're not even sure you actually believe. And, and you kind of want to get more involved in church, and you kind of don't. You're like sort of involved. Your family goes to church. Your family's involved, and you're okay with your kids being part of our ministries and stuff. But you personally, you're still not sure. You're not ready to actually jump in and be a part of this church because deep down, you're not really sure you believe all this stuff. You have one or two like debilitating, crippling doubts and hang-ups where you can't really get past. Or maybe you, you, you have no desire for the word. You have no desire to study scripture. And to be honest, that doesn't really bother you. Because if you're honest with yourself, you're not really sure if you believe scripture, you believe the teachings anyways. And so for now, you're content with just one foot in, one foot out. You casually attend to keep the peace between your relationships. But as far as getting deep and, and growing in your understanding and maturity of Jesus, you're not so sure about that yet. If any of you are in that situation or you know someone in your life that fits one of those categories, I'm glad you're here today, and I hope that we can discuss these on the light of biblical truth. But before we go any deeper into the word, I ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you again for this immense privilege that we have, Father. I feel like it's so easy for us to forget, um, especially over the course of the past few years, what a privilege it is just to be here in person together, worshiping you, and on the Sabbath, reflecting on your word and on your truth. Father, I ask that in this moment, you prepare our hearts for your word, Father. Whatever's been going on in our lives, Father, as we, in the song that we just sang, Father, may we prepare our hearts and have a little piece of heaven on earth today. May the kingdom of heaven be present here today, Lord, in our hearts and in our minds. Open our hearts, soften our hearts, open our ears, Father, to the words that you have for us, Father. I ask that you speak, speak through me, hide me behind your cross. I praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to the issue of doubt, I want to start by looking at someone um, in Jesus' life that is probably the most inconsistent of Jesus' followers. This was someone among his followers that had the highest highs and the lowest of lows. And he was kind of a dramatic character. And because of this, he has a lot of screen time in the Bible. There's a lot about this guy because, again, there's a whole highlight reel about him and a whole lot of lowlights in his life that makes him kind of a polarizing figure. And he was very loud. And, and again, he, he was kind of in the front because he was someone that really was kind of at extreme ends of faith in his relationship to Jesus. And that person is none other than Simon Peter. And to be fair to Peter, a lot of times when the disciple Peter is brought up in church, more often than not, it's generally to look at a low light in Peter's life. Hey, here's an example of something Peter did that you should not do. Very often, Peter is preached about in the context of denying Jesus, right? Just before Jesus' is like big moment, and as he's stressing out and he's separated from Jesus to save his own self, he denies knowing Jesus three times, just as Jesus predicted. In part one, we looked at a, a story of Jesus harshly rebuking Peter, calling him Satan, saying, get behind me, Satan, because of his temptation and rebuke of what Jesus said. In the garden, as Jesus is being arrested, Peter cuts off a soldier's ear because he reacts harshly and he's angry and he's violent. And then you have these kind of moments of Peter where 
He's the first one to step out of the boat when Jesus, he sees Jesus walking. And it's a really cool moment where he's walking on water, but then he drowns because he looks away from Jesus. And any time that's brought up in a sermon, it's always, don't be like Peter. Keep your eyes on Jesus, unlike Peter. And last but not least, even when Jesus reinstates Peter at the very end, again, another uh, passage of scripture that's often preached about, he reinstates Peter and he says, I love you, I love you, do you love me? Even then, Peter can't really live up to the moment, and it really becomes a highlight of Jesus' love for Peter rather than Peter doing anything well. So again, nine times out of ten, when you talk about Peter in church, it's generally a negative thing, and it's almost always an example of don't be like this guy. But today, we're going to give Peter a break, and we're going to look at probably one of the greatest moments in his life. When you look at the life of Peter, especially in relation to him being a disciple of Jesus, this may be the highlight of his career as a disciple with Jesus when he was on earth. We look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. We'll get that on the screen. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And this is um, regarding Jesus responding to his disciples. And again, there's a, we'll set some context about this a little later. But Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, his closest friends, his followers. Remember, this is Matthew chapter 16. They spent some time together. They've seen Jesus doing some miracles. They have an inkling of a relationship with him and who he is. And he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And very often in Jesus' teachings, um, he, would like, he would turn to his disciples and just ask them kind of a pop quiz question. And I've never, I've never even really been inside a hospital, but I've watched a lot of like hospital dramas and TV shows. And I imagine it's something along like, there's always this scene where the attending has this group of residents. He's walking around, and he'll stop. And like, boom, just ask a quick quiz question about, what about this patient, what about this? And very often, Jesus does it with his disciples where he's walking around, and he'll just ask them a question. And nine times out of ten, they either have no answer or their answer is wrong. So they ask him, who do people say that I am? And they reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Again, kind of like a spread all, kind of safe answer. Some say this, some say that. And they end with, or one of the other prophets. And they ask this question, and Jesus cuts through, and he asks, who do you say I am? What about you? Forget what other people say. I get that other people might think I'm a prophet and people are unsure, but you guys, my closest 12 disciples, who do you say that I am? And this is where Peter has this moment where he steps up and he clutches it up and he hits the shot and Peter responds by saying, you, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he has this moment where he steps up and everyone's unsure and they're like not really sure what to say and he says, you know what God, I know who you are. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And this is Jesus' response, probably the greatest compliment Peter will ever receive in his life. Jesus, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Next verse. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and on the gates and and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And you can see why this is potentially one of the greatest compliments that Peter ever received in his life, and it's pretty high praise for someone that as far as modern church history goes, we look back on him, and he's not much more than just like the loud disciple. John is the beloved disciple, Thomas was the doubting disciple, and Peter is kind of just the loud disciple. But in this moment, he has this, this redemptive moment, and here Peter sets the framework for who his image of Jesus is. By him saying that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he's revealing to Jesus in this moment this is how I view you, God. My perspective towards you, my framework for who you are is based on you being the Messiah. And it's important to take a note of like why this is such a momentous moment in Jesus' ministry and his relationship with his people. 
Um, it's easier for us to look at it and be like, oh, I mean, that's obvious. And because we've read the Bible and we know how the story ends, you know that Jesus dies and he resurrects, he's the son of God. But in this point in time, Matthew chapter 16, it's a little bit up in the air who Jesus really is. He's done a good amount of miracles. And he's fed the 5,000, the 4,000. He's walked on water. And there, there are these suspicions that people have. John the Baptist declared him to be the Lamb of God. But people are still making their minds up about this at this point in time. And, and even just one chapter before, he's walked on water. And as he walks onto the boat, having crossed this large body of water, the people on the boat can't help but proclaim, surely, surely you must be the Son of God. But the very next chapter, you have people come up to Jesus. Actually, the beginning of Matthew chapter 16 is about a group of Pharisees coming up to Jesus and asking, who are you really? Give us a sign. Give us a sign about who you really are. Because it's enough on people's minds that they're a little suspicious. He might be, he might not be. He's definitely done some amazing miracles. But Messiah, Son of God, Prophet is probably a safer answer at this point. But in this moment, when things aren't still crystal clear, Peter makes this step in faith and he announces to Jesus and he declares his allegiance, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And this declaration set the framework for the perspective and posture that Peter would have towards Jesus. This, that declaration that you, this fellow human being, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of the living God and you are the Messiah that we have been waiting for all this time. Messiah being synonymous with the deliverer of Israel. And it's such an astounding like, declaration that even Jesus has to admit, Peter, that was amazing. I want you to know that did not come from you. That came from God himself. And you saying that is evidence that God is working through you. Easily one of the highlights of Peter's life. And the reason this is relevant for our series on doubt is because it's very important, especially if you're struggling with doubt, it's very important to truly recognize, when it comes to truly recognizing our doubt, we have to come to terms with who or what it is that we're really doubting. And so for Peter, his entire framework of who Jesus was, who he was following, what it meant to follow Jesus, was based on the fact that I, Peter, truly believe that this human being in front of me is the Son of God and he's the Messiah that's come to deliver Israel. And that set the basis of everything that he did. And again, if you're struggling with doubt, it's important to come to terms with what and who is it that you're actually doubting. For Peter, he sets that framework. And it's because a faulty framework or a false foundation, if you have the wrong idea of what it is that you're actually doubting, can lead to unnecessary doubt. That framework that you set at the, important of your, at the foundation of your beliefs is very, very important. And you know this, anyone that's been a student knows this pretty well. Um, my senior year at Andrews, I took a class called Theology II. Um, and if you know a lot of pastors, before they, be, they go into ministry, you, you major in something called theology. And so I was really excited for this class because I'm a theology major, taking a theology class, and I was like, you know, like that's what I am, that's what it's called. And I was really, really excited to take this class um, but the way my schedule worked out, I took it my last semester in college, essentially. And I took theology one semester before, and to be honest, it was kind of a draw. I don't know if you've ever had that, that class in college where you were really excited for it, and you showed up to class, and you were like really excited to take notes and learn, and after a month or two in, you're like, this is, this is not what I expected. And so very quickly in theology one, I was like, eh, it's kind of dry. And so when it came time to take theology two, not only was I already like, meh, about the class, but I was a senior, I, was, I had like three or four months left of, of school before I came to Rock and I could actually do ministry. I was, I was slowly checked out. But the one saving grace of this class was that this teacher, um, Dr. Shiraba, was, very, very, was a very kind person, very soft-spoken and gentle. 
um, he was one of those theology professors that had a lot of grace. It was very understanding, which meant that everyone got an A in his class, which is the most important thing, right? You talk to him, like, I have, he, he would, uh, the first day as he was introducing his syllabus, I'm a very graceful man, and everyone's like, we're all getting an A in this class. This is awesome. And because of that, he wanted to make sure that we all actually did get a good grade in his class. And so what he did was, at the very beginning of the first day of school, as we went through the syllabus, he talked about how the big thing in this class was a final research paper that we would have on some sort of theological concept, right? And at the end of the, at the, at the, end of the semester, we'd have a 20-page paper that was due on whatever topic we picked. But to help us write this paper, he would stagger the due dates. So like the outline would be due in three weeks from now, and then the bibliography would be due a month after that, and then a rough draft, and this and this and that. And so by the time that the final paper was actually due, theoretically, most of your paper was already written. But of course, all I heard was, there's only one paper due at the end of this, cl at the end of this class, that's the only assignment we have. And so, what happened was, as those due, due dates came and zoomed on by, um, what I did was, okay, the first thing that's due is I just need to pick a topic. So what he did was he arranged office hours, you'd come into his office and you would present your topic to him, and he would help you like, work it out and make it more specific so you could actually write a paper about it. Done, check, got it in. I, I think I wrote my paper on confession, what it actually meant. And the next thing that was due was an outline. But all I knew was he was not going to actually grade the outline. All you needed to do was turn in an outline, and he would give you points for it. So the night before it was due, I was like, oh my goodness, that outline is due for DOT. We had a Dropbox. We had to turn it in online. I just wrote something, just something. I wrote confession at the top. I wrote some random stuff in the middle, and I turned it in. Next. Bibliography is due. I went to the library. I just pulled 20 books on confession or something about church and Jesus. I just wrote them all down, a quick summary, turned it in. And after that, he starts to get a little lax, and then he stopped asking for stuff to be due until finals week came around. And finals week was when the paper was actually due. Keep in mind, he expected us to be working on this since the first week of school, a 20-page paper. So it, it's, it was fair. And before we get into how it actually started, I have to give a little context on on a foundational aspect of me as a student. When I was in junior high, I was talking to someone in church, actually, when I grew up, and one of these older guys in my church, he was a high school kid, he looked at me, and I was talking to him about how I struggled a lot with procrastination. I was like, hey, I called him, Hyung, hey, Hyung, like, it's really hard for me to get my work done on time, da, da, da. And he looked at me, and he was like, hey, man, pressure makes diamonds. And he gave me a fist bump. And he said, yeah, man, pressure makes diamonds. And I was like, oh, my goodness. That is so true. Pressure does make diamonds. And like, I have that like, imprinted in my soul. Again, fast forward to now, like seven years later, I'm in college, and I have two days to write a 20-page paper. And I sat down on the first of two days, and I spent the better part of one day, an entire day in the library, trying to save this outline. Again, I'm trying to follow the outline that I made three months ago that I turned in in the span of 10 minutes. And when I tell you I spent like six hours in the library trying to make this outline work. And by the end of the day, I had maybe a page and a half. And before the library closed, I realized I have to throw this all away. None of this works. And so what I did was I scrapped the entire thing. And the next day, I had basically 24 hours to finish my entire paper from start to finish, which I would not recommend. There's a lot of prayer, a lot of doubt, a lot of anxiety at four in the morning. I, and again, I brushed it off, I procrastinated, but the problem for me was, at the very core, and because those things were due during the year, I like, felt good about myself during the year. I was like, hey, like, I turned in an outline, I have a rough draft, I have all this stuff. When my push came to shove and I 
blew the dust off of that outline, I realized pretty late, actually, this is not going to work. And I wasted so much time trying to make this terrible, not thought out outline at all work for about a full day before I realized this is garbage. I have to throw it away. I have to start from scratch. And again, I think any student in here that's ever written a paper or had to work on some big extended project will agree that the importance on, on the importance of your framework, that outline, that idea of what you want, that vision of what you want to create, it's so important because it builds your arguments, it builds the evidence you're looking for, it helps shape the flow of your ideas, and if you don't have a solid framework, it can, you can be the most eloquent writer in the world and still turn in a terrible paper. If you've ever gotten a, a review back from your teacher where she like just circled a big chunk of text and just wrote fluff, that's exactly what she means. Yeah, you used some big words, you had some cool phrasing, you stuck a semicolon in there, but at the end of the day, this idea doesn't make any sense. And a lot of times, that's what happens when if your framework is faulty, we're prone to just try to navigate our way intellectually and do some mental gymnastics to make it work, but is it possible that if, if your framework is bad that there really can be nothing to do but to throw it out? Shortly after this amazing moment in Peter's life where he looks at Jesus and he says, you Jesus, I believe you, this fellow human, are the Messiah, the Son of God. Surely after, there's a moment, just a few verses later, just like two verses later, where Jesus takes an opportunity to adjust and correct Peter's framework of who he is. In Matthew chapter 16, the same chapter, verses 21 to 23, just a few chapters later, Jesus takes his time to explain to his disciples what's going to happen in the future. From that time on, again, we've only gone like two verses forward after potentially the highest moment in Peter's life. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Next verse. Peter, upon hearing this, hearing that the person he just called the Messiah, right? he just called him the Savior, the deliverer of Israel, upon hearing this, hearing all the terrible things Jesus is saying about himself, took him aside, him being Jesus, by the way, and began to rebuke him, him, again, being Jesus. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Just, we'll just pause here for a second. Just imagine watching this scene where, where Jesus is teaching. He's teaching, he's prophesying to his disciples. Listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to be rebuked. All the leaders, all the people you look up to, all the authority figures, anyone that has any influence in this community is going to scorn me and mock me, and they're going to kill me. And Peter says, whoa, pause. Jesus, can I talk to you in the back real quick? Let's just have a sidebar. And he rebukes Jesus saying, never, Lord. This can never, never happen. Now, if you don't know the story and you know how this ends and you don't remember part one of the series where Pastor Chris mentioned this as well, on paper, this seems like a fairly caring thing to say. He loves Jesus. He cares about Jesus. He just declared that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't want bad things to happen to someone that he cares about, which is fair. But this is Jesus' response. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And again, without any context on paper, it seems a little bit harsh, right? Jesus just told Peter, Hey, these terrible things are going to happen to me. And Peter's response to him is, Jesus, I really wish those things wouldn't happen to you. We should not, we should not let those terrible things happen to you. We should put a stop to that. But... There are two reasons Jesus' reaction to Peter is so harsh and such a strong rebuke, literally calling him Satan and a stumbling block for Jesus himself. On one hand, his rebuke is so strong because for Jesus, what Peter said 
was a legitimate source of temptation. Again, I think a lot of times for us that have grown up in the church, we almost become desensitized to the story of the gospel and what Jesus did. And for sometimes, it, it kind of goes over our head that this was not a desirable thing for Jesus to do. Jesus didn't want to be scorned and mocked and, and, and put on a cross and crucified and humiliated. If there was some other way, Jesus himself says it, Father, let the cup pass. This, it's not like Jesus was like, yes, I'm so excited to do these things. As a human, he struggled with the same temptations we did. So when Peter comes up to him and said, dude, we should put a stop to this. We should make sure this doesn't happen. It was genuinely a legitimate source of temptation for Jesus, who again, had the same struggles that we as humans do, of wanting to avoid pain and suffering and humiliation and mockery. But on the other hand, the, the second reason why, why Jesus' rebuke of Peter was so harsh was in this. It's because... It reveals a fundamental misunderstanding of the identity and mission of who Jesus was, right? G Peter calls Jesus the Messiah. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But that word Messiah a lot of times is synonymous with the term uh, deliverer. And for Peter, what he really thought Jesus was going to do was deliver Judea from the Romans or deliver him from poverty or deliver him from something else. So when he heard that Jesus said that he's going to die and be mocked by the people in authority, it, it, it messed with his actual understanding of who Jesus was. Peter says, Jesus, I just called you the Deliverer, the Messiah, the Son of God. How can you then say you're going to die and be mocked and humiliated? It didn't make sense with the framework that Peter had created for Jesus. His fundamental understanding of who Jesus was was a king, a deliverer, a hero. And what Jesus was saying contradicted directly what his idea was. So really, the statement that Peter makes although on paper and on the surface seemingly caring, was both a temptation to Jesus as well as evidence of an incorrect framework of who Jesus was. And the reason I share this kind of two-part interaction where Peter declares that Jesus is Lord and the Messiah, and then just two verses later, Jesus strongly and harshly rebukes and corrects his understanding of who he is, especially in regards to anyone that may be suffering with doubt or struggling with a loved one that has doubt, is that, is it possible that your doubt, this huge hang-up that you have, this spiritual roadblock in your life that you have about what it means to follow Jesus, is simply the result of a faulty framework? Or to use a phrase that's used more often in Scripture, a false understanding, a foundation that's built on the wrong idea. And if that's the case, I want you to take what Pastor Chris talked about last week in doubting our doubts and expand that a little bit. If you're here and you listen to Pastor Chris for the past two weeks talk about all these things about doubt and you're like, it's not really working for me, then perhaps it's time to not just doubt your doubts, but take a step further and go 30,000 feet and doubt your actual framework. Doubt the foundation of what you think it means to follow Jesus. Doubt the foundation of what it actually means for you when you say you believe in who Jesus is. And is it possible that the doubts that you have are ones that you have because of a faulty foundational understanding of what it even means to follow Jesus, or of who it is that Jesus actually was, or what he actually did. For example, I don't know if there's anyone here that struggles with, with like, you have this doubt about, should I really give to church, right? Should I really give my time, my energy, my money to church? And maybe you're, you're brought up in, in a framework where people told you and they presented God to you very similarly to like Greek mythology, mythological gods where God needed your attention and God needed your love and God needed your affection and that's what sustained them. And in that same line of thinking, God needs your money. 
God needs your money, God needs your family and your children, God needs your dedication because that is what sustains him. If you've had that framework growing up and people taught you all the time that God needs your money, otherwise he doesn't know what to do. God needs your affection. God needs your love because that's what keeps him going. It's understandable that you would then grow up and be skeptical and be, why does a God that created everything need my money? Why does he need my time? Why does this organization of the church keep asking for these things? And again, if your foundation is built on a God that needed certain things for you in order to be sustained or in order for you to be saved, I can understand why you can come, come to this point in your life and that can be a huge roadblock for you. I don't want to give to a God that needs me. What kind of God needs my time and my money? It seems a little egocentrical. It, it doesn't really make sense to me. Or this past week, um, I was at Oregon Conference camp meeting and I helped out with the, the junior high school tent. And one of the pastors that I was working with shared a story about her life. When she was growing up and she grew up in the church, she grew up with this crippling fear and anxiety of the second coming. She said when she grew up, she was so scared of Jesus coming back because she was scared that when Jesus came, Jesus would look at her and she would fail the test. And Jesus would come and say, you are not worthy of heaven. And she had this crippling anxiety for her whole life. Every sermon she listened to, every praise song she sang, she did every time she did devotions, she did it hoping that she could essentially study to pass this test. That if she did a few more devotions, read a few extra chapters, never miss a day of church, then when Jesus actually came, she could be saved because Jesus likes her now. Because she did enough to get into heaven. And she said she carried this burden with her for so, so long. And really the driving force for her relationship with Jesus was this crippling fear and shame and guilt where she felt like if she didn't do enough, God would reject her when he came. And so anytime a preacher or anyone mentioned the second coming, she would cringe and get nervous and get this pit in her stomach because she didn't want Jesus to come back because she felt unprepared and she hadn't do enough. And then one day, she said she came to camp, uh, some camp, and, and, and the teacher, the preacher corrected her understanding by saying, you are already saved and told her that God already loves you and you've already earned the love of Jesus and that you're going, when Jesus comes back, it will be an amazing moment for you because you will be snatched up in the clouds with him. And when she heard that, she, had this, she was washed over with this wave of gratitude and love and humility where her framework of who Jesus was was finally corrected. And her whole life, her understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus and go to church and who Jesus was, was built around the structure and framework and built on this foundation of God is like, Santa Claus, right? You better not pout, you better not cry because God has his list. And when he comes, if you have enough tick marks on your list, he's not going to take you with him. So you better be on your best behavior. But the minute that framework was dissolved and taken away, she truly understood what it meant to follow Jesus and what it meant that Jesus loved her. And for the sake of practicality, I can't go through every single potential doubt or faulty framework that you've brought up with. But again, just to start off with, if you've grown up in, in a culture or someone taught you about church that that God needs your attention and God needs your love because that's the kind of God, he's a demanding God like that, or that God is looking at you in the same way that we're, we tell our kids that Santa Claus watches us, where it's a behavioral checklist, and if you get enough X's, you're banned from heaven. I want you to tell you now that that's simply not true. And I want to give you, anyone that's struggling with doubt, sort of a good starting point, a fundamental truth that you can test your doubts against to help you navigate the season of doubt in your life. And it's a fundamental truth that will help you navigate. And it's, it's very, very, it's very simple. It's very simple. And when I say this, depending on where you are, you'll be like, okay, we waited 20 minutes in the sermon for this. 
But I can assure you that this phrase, especially for me and for people that I look up to that are mature in their faith and spirituality, the more I grow in my understanding of Jesus, the more profound this statement has become in my life. And again, the purpose of this statement that I'm going to tell you is, is so that you can use this as a light to reflect on your doubt and to actually ask yourself a few series of questions based on this question. Or the statement is that all good theology, any legitimate understanding of who God is, any legitimate understanding of Scripture and the church and the Bible, all good theology stems from this foundational truth, that God is love. And because God is love, God is necessarily good. And if God is good, then the message of God must also be good in what we as a church call the gospel. And the gospel is this message, and the defining characteristic of the gospel is that it is good news for humanity. And actually, the statement that Jesus makes, or that Peter makes about Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the context of that sentence, the context of Peter's statement is that God is love. And that because God is love and God is good, he directed his love towards humanity, so much so that he sent his son on earth and that the person that Peter was talking to was God himself. And the reason that person was here was so that he could die on behalf of humanity to take away the sins of a creation, uh, of a crime that he did not commit, solely for the purpose of continuing to stay in relationship with humanity. Because God is love and God is good, he urges his followers not to be in isolation, but to join a fellowship of other believers and join the church. Because God is love and because God is good, he created a way of life that if followed, is designed to make you thrive and to have peace and to have joy and to have love. And because God is good and God is love, he promises that his loving kindness will never fail you. This foundational statement that God is love has to be the foundation of your faith. If your understanding of Jesus, if your understanding of what it means to be a disciple, if your understanding of why you should be involved in church is anything other than because God is love and because God is good, might I suggest that your entire framework of what it means to follow Jesus might be incorrect. Now, at this point in time, if there's anyone here that's struggling with doubt or, 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 or anxiety or you're, you're not sure, again, you've been wrestling with doubt for a while now, and maybe this is you know, this is nothing new for you. You've had this doubt for years and for decades even. I understand as someone that's gone through a season of doubt myself that this can be a kind of a tough moment. And a lot of times when you struggle with doubt, it comes with a sense of guilt and shame. Like, I shouldn't have these doubts. And you look around at church, and it seems like everyone else knows Jesus and loves Jesus and loves studying the Bible and has no hang-ups at all. But here, here I am, and I don't really know if I really believe or know all these things. I have one or two hang-ups that's keeping me from, from diving in and, and pursuing a deep relationship with Jesus. For anyone that may be discouraged or feeling that sense as you wrestle with this, with this doubt, I want to offer you a word of encouragement. It's an idea that um, I've learned. It's a working definition of what it means to have faith in regards to being a Christian. A lot of times, faith is seen as the opposite of doubt. But the definition of faith a lot of times can seem tricky. And this is one... That, that I certainly love. This definition of faith in regards to faith in Jesus and in Christianity. Faith is not being certain about everything. Faith is not being certain about everything. It's being certain about one thing, and that's God's goodness. When it comes to your faith in Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus, faith is not about being certain about everything and that, that God has everything under control and that everything is going to work out perfectly for you. The one thing you must be certain about, though, again, is that God is good 
And I, want you to, and I want to remind you that if you would define yourself as a struggling Christian and you would characterize your relationship with God the past few months or weeks as a struggle and it's like, you can't say that you have this joy because you're like, I want to love Jesus, but I have these hang-ups and every day you do devotions or read or come to church, it's a bit of a mental battle for you. I want to remind you that a struggling Christian is still very much a Christian and that the struggle that you have as a Christian is one of the most defining aspects of being a Christian. You look at any hero in the Bible, Moses, Abraham, Jesus even, they have these moments of struggle and doubt. So if you find yourself in this moment of doubt and you're wrestling with God, I implore you to continue that struggle. In the end, I want to let you go with a series of questions to ask yourself if you're someone that is currently struggling. This is something you can actually do over the next few weeks. The first person I want you to ask questions to is to find someone in this church, in this community, in your social circle that you look up to as, as more spiritually mature, someone that you feel like is a spiritual rock or a mentor in your life, and tap into the benefits of community and ask them questions about your doubt and about their faith. Chances are what you have doubts about, what you, what you are unsure about, is not unique to you. And There's someone else in this church, if you look around at the sea of faces, someone else in the pastoral team, someone else in the eldership or the leadership that has dealt with what you're going through and can help you. Secondly, ask questions to yourself. And this can sound kind of cliche, but go down that rabbit hole and genuinely ask yourself what your understanding of Jesus is based on. Why are you at church? Why do you believe in Jesus? What does it actually mean to believe in Jesus? And why do you believe in Jesus? And if you do believe in Jesus, what does that mean you should do? And again, if you ask yourself those series and go down that rabbit hole with you and yourself, figure out at the core of what it means to follow Jesus and to be a Christian, what's there? Because if it's anything other than that, because God is love and God loves you and God is good, then perhaps you need an overhaul of your understanding of faith. And last but not least, ask these questions, ask your doubts, bring them to God. One of the biggest paradoxes that have brought me immense value to my personal spirituality and faith is that when I have doubts and when I have questions and I have struggles in my relationship and understanding of Jesus, I can turn to Jesus for help. I want to share this last Bible text as we close out in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 13. It says, For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. In remembering the promises of God, I hope that we never forget who we can turn to in our moments of doubt and struggle, even if the subject of our doubt and our struggle is God himself. For his promise to us is that I am the Lord your God. I will help you. Do not fear. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for this reminder that you've given us on on, on what to do when we're in this struggle and doubt, Father. I pray that if there's anyone in this church, anyone in this building right now that is struggling with, with wanting a deeper relationship with you and wanting a deeper understanding of who you are and wanting a, a, a more joy and, and a better relationship when it comes to studying the Word and spending time in the Word, Father. But they can't because there's just something in the way. There's a stumbling block, an obstacle, a theological hang-up, whatever it may be, Lord. Father, I ask you to give them the gentle reminder that you are good, and that you are a God of love, Father. And that no matter what it is that they're going to, Father, that you have this, this unfailing love, this loving kindness that will never fail after us, Lord. And as the psalmist David wrote, Lord, that your, the goodness of God is running after us, Father, Lord. That you never leave us, and you never forsake us, Father. As for anyone that has a loved one in their life, Father, that is struggling with doubt, 
I ask a special blessing upon them, Lord. Give them peace as they struggle with wanting their loved one to grow in their understanding of you, God, and, and to have a relationship with you. And give them the assurance that you are doing everything you can to pour your love on that person, Lord. Father, we as a, I ask that we as a church do our job in growing as a community and supporting those who have doubts and are struggling, Father, and that we can be the loving backbone in their life, Lord, that helps them get through this season of doubt as they navigate in love towards you. I thank you for your love and your grace despite our doubts. I praise in your son Jesus' name.